Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Mark. And before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. It comes with incredibly comfortable headphones and an amazing Lyra mic. And welcome Scarlett Sabet to the podcast. She's not a photographer, but she's on the podcast because of one. When I had photographer Scarlett Page on the show, I mentioned that I love this photo she had taken of a red-headed young woman with the sun shining in that space between her arm and her face, partially obscuring her. It's an incredible shot. She said, that's Scarlett Sabet. She's an amazing poet. You should have her on the podcast. Well, I reached out and she agreed. We talk about so much here. Her acting and writing, and the moment she knew poetry was her calling. The influences of Jack Kerouac, Bob Dylan, and William S. Burthen as cut-up poetry... And not only do we talk about the album of poetry she released in 2019 called Catalyst that was produced by Jimmy Page, but also the more recent work celebrating the 200th anniversary of the death of John Keats. You need to follow her on Instagram at ScarletZSabet, at ScarletZSabet on Twitter, and go check out Catalyst on her website, ScarletZSabet.com. She reads some of her work on her YouTube channel, as well as her Instagram page, and follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Review and rate, please. More of those helps the show get in front of more people. We accept cups of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. And let's ease on into this wonderful conversation with poet Scarlett Sabet on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Scarlett Sabet, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety Podcast with Mark Shea. I'm doing this in my Sunday best, I guess. And then uh, yeah, <laughs> I got everything squared away. And I'm like, all right, I'm ready. And then I, it's 1.59 and I, I left my headphones upstairs. So I had to run. I'm like, ah, oh. I'm going to run up and get my headphones. So, so I'm a little out of breath from running up and down the stairs. 
<laughs> but I will be good in about one second, so. Yeah, don't worry. There's no rush at all. Okay, good, good. Ah, same here. <laughs> uh, my oldest daughter is working right now. Uh, she's at Aww. the hospital. Um, she's oh, a, gosh. Is she a nurse? Is she a nurse? Or? She's studying to be a nurse. Yeah, she's a certified nurse's assistant right now. And uh, so she work, works part-time and uh, just helping nurses out. And when she starts uh, college next year, she'll be studying nursing. She's she's going for a four year degree in nursing. That's incredible. Oh, it, I'm blown I'm away. Time as well, yeah. <sighs> she's <laughs> she is uh, way more put together than I ever was. Now, even oh, now. That's incredible. Well, good luck to her. Oh, thank you. I'll I'll pass that along. Yeah, I do. Oh my gosh. So. The first thing I do is thank you for joining me. So I, Aww, it's a pleasure. <laughs> I really do appreciate it. It's, it's uh, really wonderful to speak with you again. And, and what I want to know a little bit more about initially is what made you start writing poetry? Uh, is there a literary background in your family or is it something that you were just drawn to when you were young or were you, did you come to That's it a good recently? Question. That's a really interesting question. I think I always, you know, English was my best subject at school as a child and as a teenager. And my parents were very, I guess, literary um, in terms of, you know, we had a lot of books in the house and my mom definitely encouraged me just to read any book that took my fancy. So in oh. addition to say, yeah, books of you know, the, what we were studying at school, I would read, you know, my mum's, a lot of, she had a lot of Margaret Atwood and Sylvia uh, Plath. Yes. So yeah, there was a lot of stuff around. And I really, I think I really enjoyed, I just enjoyed stories. I enjoyed language. And I just, I guess it, it was always just very natural to me. And I, I also enjoyed the discussion about it, you know, the kind of the analysis of it. And I okay. always kept a diary since I was a little girl and I still do. And I think a lot of my diaries, I guess it started in my early twenties when I was around 2021 and it was kind of the diary entries, they were kind of lyrical and rhythmic and it was these kind of poems were emerging and I never really knew that they were poems or oh, if wow. I, yeah, I just was like, okay, well, this has got a rhythm to it and it makes sense to me. And it kind of evolved from that. But I was always writing, looking back, it was never quite a conscious decision. It was just a thing that overtook everything else and okay. was there. And then once I really focused on it and was like, oh, this is the, this is my thing. This is clearly like my vocation. Once I focused all my energy on it, it really accelerated very quickly, which I think is very interesting. And often that's like an, in looking back, it's definitely an indication in, in life of sometimes, of course, with everything, you know, life, you get experience hurdles, whether it be right. in your personal life or work or, or whatever, we all, you know, you've got to persevere and have stamina. Exactly. But I think it was it like looking back, it just, it went so quickly once I really focused, but it's, you know, and I think books that really moved me at school, I remember To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, that was, yes. I think that's probably maybe one of the only books that's actually made me cry because that was just incredible. And I think it's so important that, that that's, you know, taught in schools. Um, and I really remember 
reading my mum's, um, what's it called? The Margaret Atwood book that is now The Handmaiden's Tale. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Our TV series. And I read that when I was like, I want to say like 12 or 13. So it was very wow. interesting. And I also listened to Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, from like, you know, primary school onwards. And they would have something called the book at bedtime, which would be, you know, basically, I guess is the equivalent of like a audio book now, but they were on the radio. They'd for half an hour would read the same book. So each month they'd have an abridged version of actors reading a book. So I kind oh, of wow. absorbed a lot of books that way and listened to the radio a lot. And that's really even cool. now. Yeah, it, it really is. And so I remember when I was, I guess, 16, 17, doing my A-levels at school, we were studying an Iris Murdoch book uh, called The Bell. Okay. And I thought, God, this seems familiar. And then I realized that I'd heard it <laughs> when I was much younger as a radio, you know, play. Oh, wow. And, which was so interesting. And I think also I heard um, The Tin Drum so it was all these things that you kind of hear in my corner and it would be when I was a child and I was probably supposed to be asleep, but I would kind of listen to the the radio and then sometimes I'd fall asleep and my parents would come in and just turn the radio off and they didn't mind because it was radio four. It wasn't, you know, they were like, okay, it's educational. So they kind of, they right. didn't mind that I was up <laughs> listening to the radio. They probably just thought, kind of unusual child. Who's yeah. got <laughs> <laughs> I guess there are worse things children can be up late doing. But oh, it, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> it, yeah, so it was, it was really interesting. And I also, you know, I loved music. My parents had a lot of vinyl and I loved films. So I think it was, I guess, looking back, the thread was always you know, imagination and storytelling and, and really with the written word and poetry, I really got so excited by the language you can use to tell a story or the different mm -hmm. ways. And I think when I was, um, when I was doing my A-levels, I got a, I got a scholarship to a school called Hurtwood House in Surrey, which is really, it's a brilliant school. Okay. Uh, Emily Blunt went there. And I think Hans Zimmer, who was, who's oh, like wow. a, yeah, he does all the film schools. So they've had a lot of, it's it's great academically, but it's also really kind of renowned for the art. So I was lucky my parents agreed. I wanted Man. to go to them. It was that like, you've got to get a scholarship if you want to go. Yeah. So I will, I will. And I did and, let, and he let me. But my English teacher there was a lady called Louise and she was brilliant. She really made, I think it, I'd studied Shakespeare before at school, but she really made it accessible because you're always told how great Shakespeare is, but the way she, we were studying Anthony and Cleopatra and the way she broke it down. And it was a very small class. It was like six. It was a mixed school. There were boys and girls, but in okay. my English class, it happened to just be all girls. And there were six of us. Oh, wow. So we really were, you know, spoiled that we could really discuss <laughs> it. Loads of time on each of the students. And it really, that was when I was like, oh my gosh, Shakespeare is amazing. And it just came alive and she really discussed and kind of almost translated it to us in a really accessible way. That's, yeah. Poetry. Yeah, that it, so was, it was wonderful. It totally, it really is so important. And I really think in life, it can just take like one teacher or one person that believes in you. And then you're like, and that sometimes can be enough. You know, yeah. just that one person that's like, no, you can do this. And, you know, each week we'd write an essay about whatever topic it was. And, you know, I was really motivated. I wanted to get an A and 
we also were studying, you know, classical poetry, you know, the Romantics, Byron and Robert Burns and um, W.B. Yeats. And those are still some of my favorite poets. So I think it re- her classes really made a deep impression on me. So I was very lucky in that respect. Now, is this the same period of time where you're studying acting? Well, that I was doing drama there as well. So I was studying drama and doing the school plays. And then it was what I think it was when I was 17 because um, Hurtwood had this reputation of being a, a great kind of drama school, well, not a drama school, but a school that had produced some great actors. And there was a lot of arts activities. So there was, it was, it's a great school. And I think it, um, it was when I was still there that I started talking to, I guess, the people that would then become my agent. So it was this um, guy, Robin, and he worked for Jilly, and they were at an agent called, it was previously called Ken McCready uh, okay. Associates, and then it became the Artist Partnership. And they represented a lot of younger artists like myself, but then they also had more established actors like Helen Mirren and Jeremy Irons and David Suchet. So they, yeah, they had a really interesting mix. And when I was still at school, when I was 17, Robin started sending me for some auditions and just seeing how it went. And then when I left, I did my first film like a month after I left in Germany. It was this horror film and it was really fun. And I just started, you know, I'd be doing loads of auditions a week and you do so many auditions and there's so many you don't get, some you do. And so that kind of progressed. And I really, I really enjoyed it. I really found the scripts interesting. Some are obviously better than others, but it yeah. also, I, I, so there was some that's like, oh, this is a bit cheesy and, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But I think the other thing was, I was very lucky that Robin and Jilly were super protective over me. They were almost like, you know, a second set of parents and they oh, really man. encouraged me. And Robin would send me for auditions, even if it was like, say, a film student that was still, at film school wanted an actress for a a film he was making as part of his degree he put me up for stuff like that because it's the experience and it's the opportunity sometimes like indie projects like that you can actually gain more experience and have more unusual scenes or or different things to do as opposed to petitioning to to be someone's girlfriend or something which you know there's nothing wrong with that but he saw the bigger picture yeah do you know what i mean and he wanted me and you know the other people he represented to develop as as actors as artists and so while you know I did some British comedy and there's a show I'm a fan of called Peep Show and I was in one scene of that when I was like 18 and like the clip is so funny because I look so young it's funny but it's but that was a great experience you know and that was a show I I loved and and really made me laugh and it was actually one of the writers is um one of the writers on people and creators is Jesse Armstrong who went on to do in the thick of it and then the American version of the thick of it is in the is a veep okay okay yeah, and I think he wow. also is the creator of Succession. Oh boy! Oh man! Yeah. So he, I mean, he is like a super brilliant writer. And yeah. I remember when on set for Peep Show, and we were doing a scene, and you know, it was kind of. I only did. I think I did like two days, maybe, because it was okay. just you know one episode I was in. But I met him, and I was like, oh my gosh! And 
we chatted about this book um, by Ian McEwan called um, Saturday. And it was just, but it was, you know, that that was cool. It was interesting. But he, I think looking back, the, the language in Peep Show, the witty one-liners, the sarcasm, all of that, it doesn't surprise me that he's had this massive success with like Veep and right. Succession. He's <laughs> so smart and he really deserves it. He's just such an incredible talent. And it's all of his, his, concepts and shows are so original so i really enjoyed you know doing stuff like that getting these experiences i just feel very lucky and you know i was also very lucky i had a place when i left school i you know applied to some universities and i had a place to study english and drama at goldsmiths university here in london okay which is a great university and i kind of deferred it and i wasn't sure and i just felt like i had to go with the momentum of you know acting and getting these parts and and just follow that rhythm but it's uh so I, I was very lucky that i got a great agent like and did my first film like a month after i left school and, and continued working the, the thing i found tricky as an actress was you are the vessel for someone else's creative vision which is an amazing thing to be part of right yeah and to change and i think as time went on more and more i was drawn to the language and that was such a brilliant creative experience of conceiving something in my mind, writing it, and then having the final say on the execution of it. And it it was really then I just, that was the beginning of the shift. And then I just was writing more and more. And that became, after a while, that became the driving force. And it was what I was more interested in. And I was kind of writing poetry constantly okay. and also still auditioning and then also waitressing. So it was like a very, but it's, I think that kind of stimulus, it was exciting, you know, meeting lots of people and the energy of it. And I was waitressing at a place called the Chelsea Arts Club in London. And there are a lot of artists there. It's uh, it's not like a you know, so I think some members clubs are kind of very fancy and posh and this yeah. is, it was, it was more, it was established um, in the Victorian times for artists. So you have to pay to be a member and then you have to be an artist to be a member. Oh, wow. And then it's subsidized, like the drinks and, and food is much cheaper because it was, you know, it's a community for artists and each month there'd be an exhibition of one of the members work and oh, there'd wow. be events. And so it was it again, and I stumbled across getting a job there so it was i was very lucky i was very lucky like all these kind of things that happened and i and 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 it was all kind of stimulating interesting stuff and so you know it's it's um it was all very interesting and i think i was writing more and more and i felt more and more compelled to share my work and i eventually i was living and working in chelsea where the chelsea arts club is and and one of my all-time favorite bookshops is uh the World's End Bookshop in Chelsea. Okay. And I'd hang out there a lot. I was friends with the people that ran it. And, you know, on a Friday, you know, like before and after a shift at the Chelsea Arts Club, I'd hang out at the bookshop, see what they had, look at, you know, because they have secondhand books and vintage rare books. And just, yeah, exactly. And just the smell and just it's so relaxing being there and having a cup of tea and chatting. And um, it was just really lovely. And it's on a part of the King's Road this is very historic and it's kind of one of the last parts of that area of London that hasn't been completely redone. You know, you can still sense the history from, I guess, the oh. 60s in a way and the 70s. Yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely. And so 
they knew I was writing poetry and, and they said, well, why don't you put on a poetry reading? I thought, yeah, because I, th- you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't part of the literary establishment at all. I was this, you know, waitress that had done some acting <laughs> and was writing poems and I just auditioning you know, and acting and writing and like every yeah. other day sleeping and eating yeah I don't know how you had time exactly. to do all this I know look like saying it now it sounds like a lot a lot was going on and I guess it's I don't know I guess I was young and full of energy yeah. but it's, it's, uh, I don't know I think it also it didn't feel like work obviously the waitressing would that was you know long hours and it's it's tiring but it, it yeah i didn't the other stuff was just energizing so i i put on this poetry reading and um you know i asked some other friends who i knew had written stuff to come and read because i didn't i didn't want it to be just about me i thought well let's people i know that have written or that are shy and haven't shared it yet mm-hmm. so it was like a you know a little happening and we did it and my friend alice stallard who's an artist she designed the poster and we met because she she is a member of the Chelsea Arts Club, so it was really organic and 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 lovely. And that evening, afterwards, I walked home, and I it was you know I I, I cried because but it was like tears of gratitude because I just realised that that was a really important moment in my life. Like while it was happening, because I knew. I was going to, you know, focus the rest of my life on poetry. So it was, it was just, it was really energizing and exciting. Wow. That's, you know, to be able to, <laughs> to know that moment that something happened, that's, that's rare and it's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. It, it is. And it was just this, I mean, looking back now, and that was when I realized, okay, it's about poetry and, and, you know, I think not that long after I had a chat with my agent and who was kind of like, you're not really interested in acting. Anymore, <laughs> you? you know, so I think they got it and they said, look, if you ever change your mind, like come back to us, we're here for you. So it was, you know, it was a really nice way to kind of draw a conclusion to that earlier part. And I think looking yeah. back, it was, it was the storytelling element, I guess, that first attracted me to acting, but it was just the different side of things I wanted to explore more. That makes sense because poetry to me is amazing because unless you're going for the reading the epic poems, typical poem, it tells a full story in such a short period of time. Yeah. A lot like your poem Feathers, which I love, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Your mouth still tastes like tears and thirst. Your touch still gets me like the very first time. Infuse these words of mine. Drip down. Let it become she and him. Two. Tiny breaths in her chest like birds. Trapped in her ribs. Like the one he gave up for her. Feathers scratch the inside of her lungs as she comes all undone. Bird-like. Quivering under the vibrations of his breath. And she learned the magic of an innocent she came to crave under the palm, black and inky. Tremors learned and the muscles transmit back, skull lit up, each more vivid than the last. Skin pale and shadow, just telltale signs of where the blood goes. He signaled every mark beneath her eye socket. Muscles relay the tremors. And the knowledge of him is now in her bones. But it, it tells a full story in just a a few lines and it's to me it's incredible that that somebody has the talent to be 
be able to, to, to do that because I can't do it, obviously, as I'm speaking because I'm stuttering here and yeah. it's tripping on my words constantly. But, but to be able to be that concise and explain something so easily, it's just, it blows me away. Oh, well, that that's very sweet. And I, yeah, that poem feathers means a lot to me. So I'm, I'm so glad it kind of resonates with you too. And it, it is, I think the poems that I love when you're just like, oh, that's so concise and beautiful. And the language is just, you know, it's like, wow. How, yeah. how do they do that? And wow, that's possible. And, and I think, and you know, sometimes there are some poems like Shackles and Fifth Circle of Hell and another one, a love poem, Ocean, that, you know, I had this thing stirring and kind of brewing. And then I sat down and it all came out. And then the way it was published was the way I first, you know, wrote it. It came mm -hmm. out, you know, first draft. And, yeah. and then there are others that are kind of, you know, that I, you work out or you write it and then you dismantle it and then you switch that around. And so it's, it's, and it's good to have both, you know, it's, it's good to, and I think that's the other thing is like, don't be discouraged if it's not how you want it the first time. It's right. important to keep working at it. Yeah. Well, I think you've mentioned in the past that Rockin' Underground was written in mm. one shot and never rewritten. Yes. Yes. No, you're right. That's another one that, yeah, I wrote, on the tube in London and um, I was reading, it was kind of like a stressful Sunday. I was on the district line. I was going back home. I think I'd actually seen, I think I'd actually seen Charlie Hanson. I was getting the district line back. He lived in, um, I guess, East London. I was in uh, Chelsea. So I got the, on the tube home and I was reading Leaves of Grass, which is, I love Whitman and it's such a beautiful yeah. Book. But I just felt it didn't really resonate that day. And it was just like, ugh. And I put <laughs> down that book and I picked up my Moleska notebook and I wrote Rocking Underground. And then I was aware that I had to get off and change um, at what, like the next stop. So it was like this sense of urgency. And that's the thing. Like sometimes it's writing something at home and other times it's like you're on a journey or you're kind of under pressure or the circumstances are limited and you've got to get it. And it's just, you know, your mind falls into the gaps of the space of that journey and something emerges and, and yeah, it's rocking underground came out. And that first poetry reading I did, um, on the 12th of November, 2013, I said, Rocking Underground, that was one of the poems I performed that night. Wow. And, and you know what's really interesting is you mentioned that you know you had to get off at a stop, and so you, you mm. kind of wrote it quickly. And mm. one of the recurring themes that I've, I've come to realize on this podcast is that a lot of the creative people that I have on here are the most creative when they give themselves boundaries. And yeah. it forces you to be creative. So you, you know, you gave yes. yourself, I've got to get off of this. Uh, I got to get off the tube of this next exit or this yeah. next stop. I'm going to, I'm writing this and it's done. And then that was, you, you created something that it didn't have to be rewritten. You know, you, you looked at it yeah. and it's, that's it. That's the way it needs to be. It's interesting. I, I, it's something that occurs more and more. And that totally makes sense that other people you've spoken to on, on the podcast have said that because sometimes there's, the creativity and the freedom within the restriction. Yes. You're so restricted. You're like, okay, all I can do in this time, 
whatever, let's see what comes out, what's going to happen. Yeah. And it almost is liberating because you're so limited. Exactly. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing. And then other times it, you know, you've got all the time in the world and, and you may, it may not be that productive. So it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And that's why I think sometimes as well, a deadline is good or it can be, it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing I've noticed as well. That's funny. You pointed out. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question about the, creative processes, particularly sure, for, for poetry. I have this preconceived notion, and I, I've always had this, that writing, and I've done a little bit for friends in, in LA and all, nothing's ever gone anywhere, and maybe this is why, because <laughs> I have this preconceived notion, particularly with poetry, that it's linear, and you start writing until you're done, and mm. you write from the beginning to the end. But I, I've got a feeling that that's not exactly how it goes. I mean, do you write poems and then realize that, hey, I need to, I need to figure out a way to start this poem or all this is garbage except for these two lines? Is, is, does that that's happen? interesting. I definitely have written things and then I've rearranged it. You know, you write something down and then I'll type it up and then almost looking at it, like literally looking at the arrangement, as it were, it strikes me or it occurs to me that would work. There. In fact, I need to get rid of that. That's superfluous. Cut that. Let the poem start with that line. That's stronger. Okay. So I think in a way, it doesn't have to be linear. I think the other thing you can do is start, write, whether it's you know a poem or a story or whatever, write the linear version. And then after that, you know, maybe have a break, go back, read it. And then it might occur to you something else that you want to say and write that down. And then you can kind of, you know, type it all up and it will occur to you what should be first. So it's, it's, I definitely, I mean, it is different for everyone, but I definitely, I think it's always better to get it down on paper. And I think so often that's what stops people from writing or doing, you know, anything, or you want it to be good and you want it to be perfect. And that can stop you as well, but it's just best to get it out. Yeah. And then the more you've written, the more you can work with as it were. Exactly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Do you have to make yourself write every day or do you, I mean, do you have a set, time or, or a set mm. process to writing like every day at uh, 8 a.m. I sit down and I write something whether it you know whether I'm in the mood or not or I try to do that I think it's important to have a consistency and it's like it's not an option not to and sometimes it's again sometimes it's easier or it's difficult and and sometimes if I'm doing working on something and it's not flowing or I just or I'm getting critical then I will just switch and work on something else but I really try and write every day because I think it's just it's important to do it and you want to you just it's I think it's really important to be disciplined I think especially in the creative arts it's important to be disciplined and have a routine that works yeah. for me so I think it's it's yeah and again the more you work the, the kind of the more you'll have to work with and the stronger you'll become at it, I think. So it's it's 
a, like a lot of art forms, you, you need to yes. practice it. And then yes, it, totally. <laughs> I know I, that was part of my problem in photography is that I felt like I should know everything already and I wanted it yeah. to be perfect when I, the first time. And I got so frustrated when I had, would have something set up in the studio and it wasn't working. And mm. part of the problem in school is that, you know, you don't have your own studio. You have to check it out yes. for, for a certain amount of time and then you have to leave. And it's, so it's a little more difficult in that situation, but my natural, uh, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know what the word is, but my natural tendency is to feel like I should know how to do stuff, even though I've never been taught. I don't know. It's, it's some, no, that makes sense. And I, I, I understand that. I've heard other people say that. And I, I also think doing photography, it's got to be precise and you've got to line up. There's probably more pressure on the first draft, as it were, the first shot or the first couple of shots in it, a way. It can be, especially if, you know, if you're doing a photojournalistic style or something like that. Gosh. Uh, when, but when you're in the studio, you have a little more leeway because, you know, oh, the, I got to move this light here. I got to move a scrim, move a reflector, uh, change my exposure. And you can, you've got time to do that. And I would just find if I couldn't get what I had in my head very mm. quickly, I got very frustrated with myself. And uh, I think part of that led to why I ended up leaving school without finishing Aww. and getting my degree. Oh, bless you. Oh, bless you. <laughs> but, but you still take photographs now, don't you? Oh, yeah. I, I actually... When I left school, I actually got work in a studio. And Amazing. Got, well, it was all, maybe it was almost freeing for you once you left school. You felt more creative, maybe. I, I felt <laughs> it was weird because I felt I felt very disillusioned once I got school. And, and all right, so this is this is going to go a little weird into my background a little bit here for a second, but uh, why not? Um, my parents got divorced in my junior year of high school, like the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And my mom, I honestly, once she left, I didn't see her for probably six to eight years at all. Not at all. And that was partially my choosing, partially her choosing, you know, it's, it was, it was rough on all those kids. And it, it was. And when I got to college i i wasn't ready for it and Mm. and so what you would do is you would you would get an assignment and you'd have to shoot a whole bunch of film which costs money and then develop it get all these prints and then you would have critiques so your teacher would go over your contact sheets with you and help you pick the photos and i had a really hard time taking criticism at that mm. point, I was very immature, mm-hmm. and that well, was, you were probably just really raw from everything you'd been through as well. I, I think so, and it, I think generally because of me feeling having that natural feeling like I need to know how to do this the first time, I should I should know how to do this, mm. even though I've never been taught. And coupled with the fact that my parents had just gotten divorced and I yes. know, had that issue, I think all of that kind of came together and. and Really, I end up sabotaging myself a little bit in school, and but yeah. it's I'm I'm actually okay with it now because for you know I left school and for ten twelve years or so I was a professional photographer, had a oh, blast. That's incredible. Yeah, I had a blast doing it. Only stopped when I needed steady income because my wife and I decided to start a family, and sure, sure. she was <laughs> she had the steady income working at the bank and the insurance and all, and I was the artistic one doing Aww. doing stuff, and then uh, she wanted to stay home with the kids. And I said, I'm 
completely behind you on that. Let me get mm. a job. And so I got Aww. a job with the insurance and steady paycheck and, and a couple of, I'd, I'd say three, two or three years ago, this whole time I was still taking photos for myself, you know, the family and nothing real formal or anything. I'm very rarely setting up my lights and doing stuff. It's just pictures of the kids. But I really decided I wanted to get back into the kids were getting older. And I said, I want to get back into doing stuff. And uh, oh, yeah. through doing this podcast, I've become friendly with some musicians and you know, they, they come on mm. and we stay in touch and, and we chat and uh, they come to the area and they'll, I'll either get in contact with them to, to find out where they're playing or they'll get in touch with me and I'll go in, and take pictures at whatever concert they're doing. And I've been getting back into that. And then the pandemic hit and put a hold on that until yeah. it's open up. <laughs> but that's I, incredible. And that's amazing that I think the other thing is, is that so often, you know, creative types, we are sensitive yeah. and often the kind of academic system, I think it's good to be disciplined and, and rise to a challenge and you've got to be tough on yourself sometimes, but sometimes the structure and the limitations of say an academic system, it's so rigid and it just might not, it just might not kind of flow the same way, especially if you've been through a trauma like you had, that makes total sense that you weren't feeling your most <laughs> creative and open and down yeah. to discussing and debating. And I, I honestly, it sounds like what you did was the healthiest. Cause I think there are times in life where, you know, and there's sometimes stressful things or things that happen. I will write about them, but I won't write a poem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's more yeah. like a diary entry or more right. just writing to get it out. Because I think there are things that happen that I will be reflected in my work and I will write poems about, but I, it's not, it's not, um, there's a separation. Do you know what I mean? And I think mm -hmm. it sounds like what you did was really healthy because you took the time to step back and then you were able to reapproach and have, I mean, 13 years as a photographer is incredible yeah. <laughs> and to have a really long, fruitful career and then segue and shift and then get, get back into it naturally. It's obviously just something within you. And I think, I think that's really important as well. I think so often it's important to, to pause and, and listen. If it's not flowing, if it's not coming out, then it's okay to take a break and, yes. you know, take care of yourself in other ways that you might need. I think that's really healthy as well because it, you, I think also it's so easy to put pressure on yourself and, and oh, then yeah. that in turn can, create more pressure and it's, you know, a never ending thing. It does. It becomes a catch 22 and it's just totally. And it's, it's funny because I look back. Okay. I look back at when, um, my wife decided she wanted to stay home with the kids and I, that happened at just the perfect time because I was really burnt on what I was doing. I, I was living oh, in, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I was living in a really rural area. I, I couldn't do my creative stuff that I wanted to do. I was, I was having to, shoot weddings and things like that and I hated mm, always hated doing that but go back a little farther and I look back at the photos from the time that I left school because I, I ended up getting into a really unhealthy relationship at that point and I just look back at it at those photos and they're dark I, oh wow I look, interesting oh gosh I look back at them I'm, I've gotten rid of a bunch of them coming I'm like I nobody needs to see these so <laughs> I don't ever want wow. to see these. Oh things. bless you! Oh bless you! That's so funny. So, <laughs> I love that. Nobody needs to see these. No, they don't. Not even me ever again. <laughs> so, 
but all right so do you ever feel completely satisfied with your work going back like that's like, a great question you've, you've had published work since 2014 i mean you, you yeah i skipped that i skipped that bit i'm glad you've told me how to pronounce some of these because i know i would mispronounce yeah. but there's rocking underground locking the key zore and camille camille okay. yeah that's it yeah do you ever look back on those and, and want to rewrite any of that material? That's a really interesting question. Not really. I think I look at them, some like the fifth circle of hell. I'm just, I, you know, I'm really proud of that poem. The same with kind of ocean. And those are both ones that came out in one sitting. And it was kind of like, you know, it was like I was channeling. I wanted to say something and it just, it came out and that experience, the experience of writing those, especially for Circle of Hell, I can remember it so clearly. And it's, it was so visceral. It was so exciting. And it was like a hot summer's day. In 2016, I had a mug of green tea and I just, (laughs) and again, I was restricted in that I had to be in one part of the house for like a couple of hours because of just other stuff going on. So I was there and it just came out. And so that was, I ha- it was just, that was really exciting. So, you know, those poems I love and I look back at them and I just think it's so cool that I had that experience of writing them in that way. And each time at a poetry reading, when I read them, it's invigorating and it's like the excitement of saying it aloud. And again, when you say something in front of a, an audience for the first time, that again, it bring it, it's sharing it and saying it it's breathing life into it. It's, it's existing again in front of a room of new people and they're hearing it for wow. the first time. So it's like rebirthing. It's, it's amazing. It's so, I mean, it's like, I just feel like the luckiest girl in the world that I get to do this. <laughs> but, it's, but I know what you mean. Like, and there's other stuff that I look at and you think, well, that's of its time. So it wouldn't be that I'd necessarily rewrite it. I've never thought like, Oh, I would do that differently. Cause I think what I do, if I've published something and put it out, you know, put it in, say, one of my collections or shared it on social media, mm-hmm. at that point, I am happy with it. And okay. I, you know, you can share something and someone can say, oh, my God, I love that. I so get that. Yeah. That really, that I really resonates. And then other people will be like, what? I didn't get that. Well, that's <laughs> rubbish. What the hell? Yeah. And, and but it doesn't matter because if I've put it out and I believe in it, mm-hmm. then the subsequent reaction somewhere down the line on, you know, whether it's social media or something that they're just like, meh, or they, you know, they don't get that one, but they get something else. It doesn't matter. And I think what's so important is because you are putting yourself out there yeah. when you're creating anything and it's your work, it's your job, it's what you love. It's this vocation that you've, you really the idealism of it and clearly you get that as well that you started to feel compromised in having to do all these like you know all these wedding yeah photo shoots it's not why you got into photography and became a photographer and it's you know i think it's it's there's i'm very idealistic in you know my personal life and also in my work so i i've i've got to be proud of it even if someone else doesn't like it at the point where i've shared it or published it i'd stand behind it right. and you know there are ones that like poems like fist up about that i will kind of always perform and then there are other poems that i perform say that year or for like the six months of those poetry readings in that year when that book came out. And then I kind of 
move into a different phase or a different cycle of poems. Like it's, it's there, there are some that are more of their time to me personally. And then equally, because I put out, you know, rocking underground, I self published, you know, four books, rocking underground in 2014. And then the lock and the key in, 2016 and then Zoré in 2018 and Camille in 2019. So they're also their own little time capsules. So, yeah, so they're all like <laughs> photographs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So they're of their time. They, so you, you wouldn't, yeah, I guess you, you really wouldn't want to change them because that, that was what you were thinking and feeling and doing at that time. Yeah, totally. Totally. Then there's Catalyst. Now Catalyst is, yeah, let's talk about Catalyst. That is that okay. So that's another what 2019 release and that came out. Yeah, 10th October 2019. That is fascinating to me for so many reasons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how? Did Where that, should we begin? I, exactly, and maybe that's how how we begin. How did that begin? Was that written? Yeah. It came out as an album. Yeah, so it's Catalyst is is a spoken word album that I released with Jimmy Page. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The brilliant artist, producer, creator, guitarist. The man man who started my obsession with music, I'll be 100% honest with you. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll tell him that. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay. Yeah, he, he's, he's the best. I mean, he, he just is, undeniably. And he... He, we were friends, we knew each other, we had some um, mutual friends, and he, we lived in the same part of London, the kind of Chelsea, Kensington area. Okay. And we both went to the same bookshop, the World's End Bookshop, and we'd met, you know, we had a couple of mutual friends, and we'd met a bunch of times, and he came to that poetry reading, my first poetry reading, and... He afterwards, I remember he just said, your words cut like a knife. And I said, gosh, you know, thank you. And, And it was such a pivotal, it was such a pivotal night for me in terms of I knew poetry is what I was supposed to be doing and dedicating my life to it. And then obviously now I know that obviously in some ways it was a very pivotal night in terms of Jimmy seeing me as a poet and then I was writing and, you know, after that point, you know, we became closer friends and he'd always ask me how my writing was going. And then the next summer, um, so I guess the end of summer 2014 was when our, you know, our romantic relationship started and, and I'd been speaking to this publisher and I kind of had mentioned to him, I said, look, I don't know what do you think about this guy and what he's saying and Jimmy was like, mm. he was like, you know, I, do, I wouldn't do it. He said, I wouldn't. He said, I think you should self-publish. So he was the one that told me to self-publish my collections. That's the and, guy you need to have tell you that because that's. Yeah, totally. And so I was like, if you think I should, then I will. And I think that is the thing. Creatively, I always defer to his opinion. And yeah. if he likes a poem, if he thinks it should go in, like he then I'll, I'll, I trust his opinion and I'll just do, I'll, I'll always take his suggestions because I, I, you know, he's the artist I respect the most, you know, apart from being obviously the man I love, he he's, his vision is unparalleled really. So 
he suggested I put out that first book and I set up my website and it was, you know, it's a slower burn when you self-publish. And I I think it's changed now, but even then in 2014, some people are still, were still slightly snobbish. I think that's lessened now, but at the time some people were, but it just, it doesn't matter now. And it doesn't, I, it doesn't negate the work. Um, but at that time, when Rocking Underground came out in 2014, and, and that came out, you know, a year after my first poetry reading, and at that time, Jimmy said, you know, we should do something together one day. We should do a poetry album together. And I thought that was like wow. a very interesting idea that he would suggest that. Yeah. And he's got his own connection with poetry and the arts. And, you know, obviously he's this incredible musician and, and music lover, but he's got a great passion for literature and architecture yeah. and you know, everything. So he, he really, he, it was something he always wanted to do and he wanted it to be subversive and he wanted <laughs> it to be at the right time. And, you know, it, it's so it's, you know, and I, and I remember after I did City Lights, I read at City Lights Bookshop in San Francisco, which was like a dream come true. And I remember afterwards wow. he was like, well, you can do anything now. Yeah. And, and it was kind of, <laughs> Yeah, it was like 2018, we went to um, the Caribbean for Christmas, which was a lovely treat. And that was, Jimmy bought kind of a cassette tape with him. And he, we started experimenting and doing the guiding track. And actually, that's when we did Rocking Underground. So actually... Oh, wow. Catalyst, the album, opens with Rocking Underground because that was the first... It's a significant poem. It's the name of my first book. And it was the first poem Jimmy heard me say. And it just made sense. So I recorded it on this cassette tape in the Caribbean um, over Christmas 2018. And Jimmy really liked the sound of it, the vibe of it. It kind of took on its own character, almost like an Orwellian atmosphere. And that version is what is on, I don't know how, but he transferred <laughs> it and that's what's on the album is that actual first experimentation. Oh, wow. That was incredible. Yeah. A city rat dressed in black, worn down underground, trying to block out the pain. The thoughts that make you go insane. They'll crawl inside your brain when you aren't looking. Distracted by hunger and fame and the simplicity of your day-to-day pain. Until you wake up, look in the mirror, realize you're not the same. You keep separating your brain, but you try to assimilate, continue to be the same in your own unique way. Jump on the great city train, give up your seat, get on your knees and exclaim, all hail, king of all things the same. Sit back down, sit yourself back down, put your brain back down, back to sleep, hush your sound because your talk's too loud for things above ground. So let the rhythm rock you, carry you down, back underground, but it all smells the same. The girls are so pretty, they all look the same. So don't blame your brain, don't explain, don't talk. All the sounds underground make the same sense, no sense. They don't carry a sound, so just keep rocking underground. And it's just... You know, it was, we recorded Catalyst at home at Tower House, which was great because it was, you know, you're comfortable at home. And, and, and again, it was just fascinating working with Jimmy. Obviously, we're together in, in a relationship and prior to that, we were good friends. So mm-hmm. we're very comfortable with each other and understand each other. And I think the, the collaboration, well, you know, our, our 
emotional connection, it lends itself to a fruitful artistic collaboration. And that's a big question I had for you. Yeah. Because I don't know, maybe maybe I'm throwing out my personality flaws at this point, but I've, <laughs> I think working with people you love, it, it for me can be difficult because, it, you know, if I'm, let's say I'm Jimmy Page and my wife is you, and yeah. I'm not really thrilled. With, that's a weird sense. If I'm not really thrilled with the take <laughs> she made, I it would be so hard for me to say, all right, that's not really do it again or yeah, we, let's do something different. That's not what we're yeah. looking for. It was that was that's that pretty difficult? interesting. Or did that that's happen very question. often? I think when it no, really, I think by the time we did it, because I'd known that we were so we. You know, we did the Rocking Underground like Christmas 2018. And then when we actually recorded the rest of it, it was um, the beginning, the week, it was the week starting May 13th, 2019. And so by that point, you know, he first mentioned that we should do something like this together kind of November 2014. So it was years later. And I think it was. I'd also just done so many poetry readings. So it, I approached the recordings like a poetry reading and I was okay. very primed and very ready and had this adrenaline and it just felt like a natural progression for me in terms of my work and then for us together in this collaboration. And I think he was so energetic about it. And the other thing is, I guess for kind of listeners that haven't listened to Catalyst yet. It's a poetry album, but there's no musical instruments. And this was the whole thing. Jimmy said, I want to do this poetry album. I want to do it really different. And I want to make this sonic landscape out of your voice and your poems, but without music. And he said, do you understand what I mean? And I said, not really. And he said, you will, you're going to get it when you hear it. I think, you know, obviously in making Catalyst, when he said he wanted to make this sonic landscape without musical instruments, but its own kind of, you know, I think what we did was it, we created like this new language in of in the poems and new music. And, and I, I didn't understand what he meant when he explained it, but I think I just had implicit trust in him. So I was in a way, I was just willing to try anything. And I, and, you know, and some things come, to the fore when I recorded Cut Up. Yes. When I record that, or not when I record that, when I perform that poem at a poetry reading, it becomes, you know, it's an impassioned performance. Yes, for sure. And the first take, the first take I did of that, I did it like I would at a poetry reading. And then it kind of occurred to me, this is a different format. It's a record. And I did it. I changed it. I, I went back and I said, I want to do it differently. And, and I did it very controlled just saying it in a much more controlled different slower quieter way but then with the kind of the production jimmy did it made it this kind of almost kind of sinister track on the record so i think it's some things as you're going about the process of recording it it you get these instincts and like, actually let's try it like this. But it was, there was never really a point where I don't know. I think that's the other thing. We were just on the same wavelength and I was just ready and willing and just so excited. And he was so impassioned. And, and I just, I think that was the key and the gift is that, you know, obviously our closeness personally, and then just my faith in him 
my implicit faith in him as, as a producer and as an artist was incredible. And it was an amazing experience The you know, probably the person I'm closest to having, you know, lived together for years and right. the man I love, but to see him in this different role and it, in the linear notes of the album, I say it was like, meeting each other again, but with our intense shared history, because I hadn't been in a studio with him before where he was producer. So that was an amazing gift and joy to see him in this, you know, in one of his most natural roles really as producer. So it was an amazing experience and it, it was honestly one of the best creative weeks of my life. And it was just so energizing. It was so exciting. And it was also, you know, it was spring. So it's when everything's coming alive and the days are getting longer and lighter and warmer. And it was just, it was really exciting. And, and we kept it a secret. We just didn't, we, the day we announced it was the day we released it. Um, and we did an interview with interview magazine, which is still available online, just talking about it because this was the other thing that we felt we wanted people to judge the work for themselves. And Mm -hmm. so we just put everything out on the same day. If we'd announced it and then it would come out months later, people would have their own ideas or preconceptions about what it was or what it would be. Yeah. yeah, It was just easier to just give it to them. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, having Jimmy's name on it, no matter what you tell anybody, they're expecting to hear some kind of Jimmy Page guitar somewhere totally totally and if they don't then they're gonna they're gonna be they will where is it (laughs) yeah exactly exactly where where is jimmy on this i thought so totally and and that's the other thing he said to me he said look some people are gonna love this and some people won't and i said look that's okay and that didn't bother me because i just he was so passionate about it and he believed in it and he wanted to do something unexpected and i think this is the other thing i mean jimmy is in a position where he can do pretty much whatever he wants. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got so many options and he gets so many offers and there's so many things of like, we'd love you to do this or come oh, and play on this or I come can't and do even this. Imagine or, what he gets. Yeah. Offered. And he's like, well, sure, I could do that, but why, you know, I want to do what I want to do. And I think that's also part of the magic of him is that he's concentrated his energy on, on what he wants to do. And, and he's not, you know, you see some people that perhaps, uh, I don't know, feel they have to do something or compromise themselves or, or, you know, to be relevant or, Oh, I should right. want to show my face there. And he's just always done the artistic challenge and to push something or do something unusual and unexpected. And I think that's to him is what, is exciting. And I think, again, personally, I always, if I've done a poetry reading somewhere, say City Lights, which I will, you know, it's always a pleasure and an honor to, I've done two readings there now, and that was amazing. And, but you, you also want to do, challenge yourself to do something somewhere else, or, you know, you've written a poem one way, I want to try something in a different way, or it's just, I think it's do something, be brave within your work. I try and always be brave. And at least, you know, yourself when you're, you know, yourself more than anyone else when you're being brave or when you're playing it safe. And, and I think Jimmy's passion for the project was kind of, you know, my suit of armor in it. It's like, I, he believed in it so much and, and I, I love it. And as time goes on, I love it more and more. And I'm just so proud that we did that. And I think it's so cool that he did that. It's just, it's, it's incredible. It's yeah, it was, it was so much fun as well. Can you explain the method that you used in cut up? I was trying, I was trying to write this kind of epic poem and I had pay. I think I had like 20 pages 
and it was getting wow. it was getting a little suffocating <laughs> and it was like i'd got all these papers and i'd been writing it out and writing it different ways and it was getting a bit like okay this needs to end yeah. and it needs to end soon because <laughs> i can't take it much longer i saw a great thing at a poetry festival in ireland that i performed in once and i saw one of the other authors and they were saying that someone once said to them how do you know when it's time to publish and he said when you can't stand your own filth anymore <laughs> then it's time to put it out when you can't stand it any longer and i just thought that was so funny when you're like you know what this needs to just finish yeah. um so was, that was a great to paraphrase that that poet suffocated author. by own work Yes, exactly. So I just thought, I'm just going to cut it up, literally. So, you know, I wrote it all out and I, I cut it up. And I was obviously happy with the parts I cut up. And they had, you know, it was lines I was I was confident in, in what I was trying to say. And, you know, I just uh, rearranged it. Um, and I did it, you know, with paper and pen and scissors. And so it's interesting. So it's, it's it, the cut up poem is a cut up, but it's got its own kind of weird rhythm. And it's about the kind of the quite dark, sinister events and cycle of events that have been going on. And it's a poem that I really love performing. And it's one that we both felt very strongly should be on, on Catalyst. That was the other thing. We definitely both felt that Rocking Underground should be on it. Um, the love poem, Possession, and Euphoric Kiss. Yes. Um, yeah, because they were they were like bookmarks to us, you know, personally, as well as yeah. being poems I'm I'm proud of as a creative work. And then Cut Up, definitely. Fifth Circle of Hell, definitely. Um, and also the nod to the beat poets, because I think in Catalyst, Jimmy wanted to create something that was, you know, would emphasize the power of the spoken word. And Jimmy uh, is, you know, he, he he's a fan of the Beat Poets too. And he actually, in the 70s, William Burroughs requested to interview Jimmy for Crawl Daddy magazine. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you. I think it's online still, the tra the transcript. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. I'll, I'll send it to you. But um, Oh, that'd be awesome. It's really interesting. And so Jimmy said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to chat to, you know, Bill Burroughs. Oh, yeah. And so they met up in New York and Jimmy said that he, the Burroughs had seen Led Zeppelin play like four times, oh, wow. maybe like four or five times. And he, which is an amazing image of like William Burroughs, like in his hat and raincoat yeah. and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> That's and exactly Madison what I thought. Watching Led Zeppelin, <laughs> um, which I just thought was fascinating. And it, it's really interesting that he, he was really inter interested in the kind of the trance kind of magical power of the music and the audience reaction. And so I think that was really interesting. So Jimmy had a personal connection to him. And obviously the, another poem on Catalyst is a poem I wrote called For Jack, which is a kind of eulogy, loving eulogy for Jack Kerouac, who, you know, he was, had this, overnight fame and success when he had um on the road published right. and he pioneered this new style is influenced by jazz very much influenced by his friend neil cassidy and it's taps into the zeitgeist and i think each generation that there's certain pieces of work and certain artists like jimmy's work obviously with led zeppelin and, and his other work that each new generation of teenagers that discover it are like 
this is the best thing ever. And oh, yeah. it's also the same with Bob Dylan, the same with, you know, On the Road. It's a rite of passage kind of book. And I remember when I was 19, I had read, my parents loved Bob Dylan. They had all his old vinyl. And I was listening to Dylan and I'd read that he had memorized this poem called Hal by Allen Ginsberg. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh, wow. So I looked it up and I was like, okay, that's a long poem to memorize. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, and then, and I don't know if that's one of like Dylan's myths that he puts out. That's possible. Um, yeah, totally <laughs> playing games with us. But, or, but also it was like, what a piece of work. What is that? I yeah. want to know more about this. Who is this? Who are these people? And then the next day I walked to my local library and I got out on the road and that had a massive impact. And it was just the language, the energy of it. And it really encapsulates that, you know, restless wanting to explore, wanting to see more and experiment. And I think, you know, I think the beats have kind of become somewhat, you know, they've been somewhat synonymous with kind of hedonism, which is certainly true, but I, they also had these kind of spiritual aspirations, creative aspirations, and they encouraged each other. And I think the kind of spiritual and creative discipline and work speaks to me greatly. And, and I, I just, the fearlessness and the experimentation and the kind of, in their time, they made history and they're very revered now, but they were also kind of outcasts and outsiders. And I definitely, a lot of my life, I've also been, you know, an outsider that finds themselves in, you know, unusual situations, if that makes sense. And it's just, it's definitely, yeah, definitely being a poet. And also I think a photographer, I'm sure you relate, you observe, Mm -hmm. you take stuff in, you absorb stuff, and then it comes out in your work. It's a different, you view things in your mind's eye and it's, you know, and, and I guess poetry is my language and, and photography yours. So it's, yeah. I love Kerak's work, but I, I think the tragedy of him is he's, he was so sensitive and obviously that shows in his work and his idealism and spirituality, but it also, the attention, the, 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 the fame and the criticism and the ridicule, and then everyone was becoming a beat. And then yeah. being a beat was like, it was almost like, they were made parodies of themselves. So yeah, it was, exactly. It was a weird thing. And, and he kind of drank himself to death. So in that poem for Jack, I try and memorialize that. And and that was actually, uh, I performed it for the first time in Lowell, his birth town and also where he's buried in Massachusetts. Oh, and um, wow. yeah, that was amazing. I, uh, the first time I read it, City Lights, there was a guy who had, um, well, came and, and saw my reading. I read with, Janika Stuckey, who's a great poet, and um, a guy in the audience said, you know, Chris Porter, he said, we, you know, we, I'd love you both to perform at this festival I'm organizing in October for Jack Kerouac. So we both performed. And, um, oh, and I, wow. between the poetry reading in, in March at City Lights and then the festival in um, Lowell in October, I wrote this poem and I debuted it there. And it was just thinking of him and, and just this kind of, Again, yeah, I guess I wanted to to capture him. So that was a poem that we really wanted on Catalyst as well. You, who let your own gift decay. You, who I remember every day to honour my own face and pen. 
You whose face I saw reflected in my grandfather's, Catholic forefathers. You who flinched unbearable under scrutiny, who tried to exist as lightly as possible, through your own desecration, crucifixion, mortification whose tears and fears were exasperated by the ocean, you who uncomfortable in applause put down your own book, you who destroyed your beauty with hops and yeast, smeared the... Yeah, bless, bless, yeah. bless Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, bringing up the, the Beat Poets, uh, Howl actually inspired one of my favorite albums, uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club's Howl. It's... Oh, I don't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah, you should check it out. It's It came out, uh, I want to say... 2003 2004 and it was a a big shift for the band because they were a little on the heavier side like the psychedelic shoegaze side and this lot more acoustic work and and oh wow it's a really I loved the band's first album their second album I wasn't really too wasn't your favorite yeah (laughs) in fact to this day it's still my least favorite album of theirs but Howl was their third album and they kind of realized that they're on a path of, of self-destruction and they couldn't keep doing the same stuff and so they just oh wow yeah they just stripped it all down and said we're gonna do this album the way we want to do it and if nobody buys it at least we did it our way and we ended our totally. career our way and there's wow, good to them they're still playing there's there's they're actually they've actually become good friends of mine and it's just oh. because of the podcast yeah but um it's, oh, that's so cool! Oh, they're they're an amazing band. In fact, their last two albums are possibly my favorite albums that they've ever done. That's amazing. So, speaking of things being of influences and more, maybe more inspiration is the right word. I was I, I had a really interesting idea. Cut up kind of in, inspired something in me. I thought of something really interesting, and I don't know if this has been done before. I thought I had an inspiration. When I heard Cut Up and I learned, you know, more about it sure. and, and the, the process about it. And I, I just pulled away from the mic for some reason. I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. I'm a, uh, everybody just came home. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, and, and they brought me chicken nuggets. Oh, nice. So I'll have to eat them a little later. Actually, I'm gonna, that's why I was leaning away from the mic, but I'm going to move them because <laughs> the dog is still wandering around the house and. I don't want him to get my nuggets. Oh, that's yeah, I don't want him to get my chicken nuggets. Yeah. Okay. So I heard Cut Up and I mm. had learned a little bit. I don't want to say learned about, but I guess maybe that's the best way to put it uh, about the Cut Up process from Burroughs and all. And mm. like probably 50% of this planet, I have done some improv classes and some performances and have a podcast. So, <laughs> I had, you're too self-deprecating. I, <laughs> it's, it's it's a natural. I don't want to say defense mechanism because I'm not feeling defensive at all. It's just no. I know what you mean. Bless you. But I thought, how funny would it be if if you wrote maybe something like your 20 page epic poem, mm. cut it up line by line, mm. threw it all in a hat, and did a poetry reading where you just pull out right, line yes. by line. That's amazing. It's just a total improv poem. That should be done. I think definitely post lockdown, post social distancing, or even pre, anyway, some kind of legal <laughs> poetry <laughs> event. Legal poetry readings. 
yeah <laughs> where everyone's safe um and not at risk i think that's a great idea because i think it's you know spontaneous and it's that's what is exciting about i found exciting about cut up it's like what's next yes and it's an element of handing it over and i think i think i'm definitely a perfectionist and and you know clearly you are too and it's surrendering especially surrendering your work it can be tough and oh, in yeah. doing a cut up it's very liberating and it just introduces this the element of chance and fate and like the luck of the draw, the luck of the cut up into what line comes next. So it's a really interesting, that's a really interesting idea. I think you should definitely do it because I think that's, I remember when I put out um, Camille, which is my fourth book and there was, is it that book? Yeah, it was. And there's a poem in there called Hiding in Plain Sight. And that, was actually a poem, a cut-up poem that had a line from every other poem in the book. Oh, wow. So when I finished arranging what was going to go in that book before I sent it to the printer, Jimmy said, I think you should do a cut-up poem that's from every line in the poem. There's got a line from every other poem, like a poem of the book. That is brilliant. Yeah, so I've got to give him credit for that because that was, and it's called <laughs> Hiding in Plain Sight. And it's, I should go back and read that because that, that was an interesting one. But um, I also remember I lost, so the second time I read it, City Lights was in December 2019. So right mm -hmm. before the pandemic, we, we were lucky enough to go to San Francisco for a couple of days. And, um, and after we just decided to just speak about Catalyst, Jimmy was on the trip with me and after we had dinner with um, Peter Marvellis that runs City Lights and his his wife, and they're both okay. just lovely people. And they're just, oh, it's, having dinner with them is, you know, when you just want it to go on forever because they've just got so many amazing stories yes. and so many interesting <laughs> insights. And they really liked Cut Up on Catalyst. That They said that that was, you know, one of their favorites. And they said that when they got married, they actually their vows were things they'd written down, but they, I think they put it in a hat or a box and they just took it out. So they didn't know. <laughs> wow. It was like this surrealist wedding. Oh my so God. That, just when you said your thing, it reminded me of that. So it was really interesting, but I think that's a really good idea. Well, thank your you. Idea. Yeah, I think, no, I think you should definitely do that. I'll have to write poetry that's halfway decent enough to be read in public before I do that. But <laughs> no. I'll work on that and then we'll do the, the cut up. Thing. I didn't think you'll have a problem with that, but no, yeah, I think it's <laughs> a really good idea because it adds you know it adds an, uh, the risk element doesn't it to a live performance oh yeah and that's what i loved about doing the improv is because you're there yes. you've got a partner and the the only rule in improv is you can't deny your partner so ev whatever they say mm. your answer is yes and and you have to just you add yes improv is all about addition and not subtraction so it's totally that's i i love that and i i took the classes with with one of my one of my best friends, Mike, and we we did it to try to. This is I, I was telling you earlier that I had done some writing for my friends out in L.A. and Mike and I were writing together, and we thought, well, let's try to f free our constraints here. Let's let's do some improv yeah. classes, and maybe that'll help our writing. And it, I think it it did. 
Wow. But in addition, it was just so much fun to do this classes. We took them at the <laughs> DC Improv and it was just, I, I've got to give credit to the DC it. Improv. And Aww. it was so much fun. I want to, I want to do it again once they're up yes. and running. And all, so. I think also it brings back in like a joyful experimentation and yes. it's not like pressure and it's a job or where you've been hired and you've got to deliver this and that or whatever. I've got a funny story I want to tell you really fast. Do it, do it. Okay. This goes back to doing the improv classes. One of the warm-ups they have, and there's, I'd say there's probably 20 to 25 people in the class. And one of the exercises they have to warm you up is everybody forms a circle and the instructor is in the middle. He starts singing a song and somebody has to tap him and he goes out and that person comes in and sings a song. And oh. it's all to free you of inhibitions. If you can sing wow. in front of people, then, you know. You can you, do anything. Exactly. I don't sing. I'm not a singer at all. I, have n- I don't have a good voice. I don't, I don't pretend to sing. Talking is hard enough for me. So I'm sitting there going, what am I going to sing? What am I going to? And I have, if you could see behind me, I have probably 3,500 to 4,000 CDs in my collection. I blanked on music oh i couldn't think of a single song yeah. at all i'm like oh because the, the point is you're trying to also get the people to sing with you and then they come in sure. and they tap you and and they carry on the song yeah or, or, i mean they can even change it up but you, you're singing and you want people to join in with you so i'm like most of my stuff is like really weird obscure stuff you know yeah. and I'm like people aren't gonna know super furry animals songs you know so, yeah. so i'm sitting there and it's coming down to like the, me and like two other people i'm like shit i gotta i gotta do this i, I i'm just gonna jump in and whatever comes into my head I'm, I'm gonna sing so i jumped in i tapped whoever was there they got out and i just started singing stairway to heaven because i couldn't think of anything no else <laughs> and i'm just and the only person who said the instructor came right in and he just started singing with me and and i was just like thank god like i picked one the one song thank that god I, there's another that's on him. exactly and i'm like it, it's a song that somebody knows and it's the only song that came into my head and i'm like oh thank you guys so i made a vow the next time they did that i was just gonna sing happy birthday so that's yes. what, <laughs> like everybody knows happy birthday. I can sing that and nobody's done it yet. So, cause that was the other thing is you couldn't sing the same song somebody else had done when you got in. So I'm like, all right. So that was my, my go-to and every class they, they wouldn't do it. They, they very rarely did the same exercise more than once, except for like two very basic ones to get you warmed up. But once they got into that kind of stuff, very rarely did they do the same ones twice, but I'm sitting there in my mind. That's my biggest fear is singing in front of people so so i'm like all right i'm gonna be prepared for that (laughs) and i'm gonna keep up i i I sang the hardest song i could think of to sing for some reason so i'm gonna try to think of something basic next time but yeah yeah that you really like set yourself up for a challenge there oh yeah so i'm like thank thank god for led zeppelin because i I would have been screwed in improv class 35 years after that song came out (laughs) all right so i have a I've kept you for quite a while here, and I just want to ask you about the 200th anniversary of John Keats's death. Yeah, you wrote a poem, and they they did some really wild CGI stuff with that. How did you get involved with that? Thank you. Yeah, no, that was um, so it was through um, 
I guess my agent, they, I, they said that I had been asked to take part in this anniversary, this two-year project. Um, it's a two-year collaboration, which is a collaborative project between the Institute of Digital Archaeology, Sir Ivor Roberts, and the Keats and Shelley Memorial Association, and okay. also the artist Dan Baldwin, and then the British poet laureate Simon Armitage and myself. So that was amazing to be asked to do that. And what is interesting, obviously, the past year, we've been in lockdown and haven't been doing poetry readings. And so I've been doing, you know, poems that I've been posting on Instagram and just doing different things like talking to you, I think, connecting with other artists in a different way. It's kind of forced me to think outside the box of how can I challenge myself within my work and do different things. So doing the videos on Instagram, that was great to be able to connect. And it's not something that I'd done before. I'd never would post videos of my poem on Instagram. I would just do, you know, I'd occasionally post a poem, like the written poem. Right. And then I'd do poetry readings and, you know, post about the poetry readings that were coming up, but I'd never done a posted a video before which kind of seems mad now so i really enjoyed that (laughs) and that connection and i was you know i think that's one of the things of like social media and technology the kind of community aspect to it for artists can be really beautiful and and we can all find each other and and i'd also wrote an essay about the Holy Communion, the poetry reading at the Royal Albert Hall um in 1965 Yeah, Yeah, yeah that jimmy attended where Adrian Mitchell and Allen Ginsberg performed. And I just felt like it was such a, I felt like it was a very important cultural event in the 60s that perhaps isn't as known as it should be. Um, right. And obviously, you know, the literary heritage of it. Um, so, and it's something I'd always thought about. And I was able to write about my love of the beat poets in it. And that's, that's uh, online. It's, uh, it was published by the London Magazine, which is London's literary. London's oldest literary journal and that's still online so that was really enjoyable to do to write an essay about you know the 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 beats and and this incredible poetry reading and some of the organizers the this Keats and Shelley project had seen my videos on Instagram and had read that essay and it was through that that they're like we'd love you to be a part of this oh wow um which is so crazy and I said yes absolutely so it's a it's really exciting to be involved in this two-year project and to be working with the poet laureate Simon Armitage, who I've always been a great fan of. And the first event was a webinar that was hosted by Magdalen College in, well, Magdalen College, Oxford. And that was when Simon and I debuted up the first poems we wrote for the project. And it was on the the day of John Keats's death and what was really interesting when i was writing that poem and speaking of you know deadlines as we were earlier that yes. was kind of the, the day of his death and that webinar i wanted to debut this poem and so that was that was really fun obviously in lockdown everything the routine everything's been so different especially during the winter here in the uk it's like the day the sun starts to set at three thirty. Oh boy! And it's from yeah, it's dark by four, and then at eight o'clock, it's been dark for four hours, and it's like, <laughs> is it time to go to bed? What am I doing? It's like it was a very dark, and then we were all in lockdown, so it was it was an extreme winter. And as I was writing this poem and reading about John Keats, he was living in a very tumultuous political time. Um, there were riots in the UK. There were 
revolutions in Europe and, you know, the civil war was starting in America and there was this tuberculosis that everyone was living with for years. And his father died very suddenly in a horse accident. And then his mother and his brother died of tuberculosis. And then he died of tuberculosis when he was 25. And and he, which is crazy that he has written so much and contributed so much. And when he died, he really felt like he had made no impact on the world and he wouldn't be remembered. And the irony that 200 years later, we're all talking and thinking about him. Um, And his work was so beautiful. And I, I think him being in this pandemic and he had, he was suffering, he had tuberculosis and the doctors recommended he go to a warmer climate that maybe that would help his chest. Mm -hmm. So he goes with a friend to Italy. And by the time they get to the port in Italy, news from England has reached, I guess, the Italian government that there's been an outbreak of cholera in the UK. So the ship has to stay in the port. Then don't let them disembark from the ship for 10 days. They've got to be in quarantine on the ship for 10 days. So it was very interesting, this whole thing of quarantine and restrictions and this, you know, this respiratory disease that is is taking so many lives during the time he lived in. And I was writing about him 200 years later in a lockdown from this awful, awful virus. So it was, that was incredible. That's amazing. History repeating itself so perfectly. Totally. It was quite eerie. And and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a real honor to be part of this. And I was really curious about, I guess just, again, I wanted to capture him. And I think what struck me was the times he would live, he was living in was very bloody. Mm Mm-hmm. He also, from the age of 15, trained as an apothecary and he worked as a surgeon's dresser. And so his medical training began when he was a teenager. And it was very hard, bloody work. He was working at St. Guy's Hospital by the River Thames in London. And, you know, they had no anesthetic then. They would give the patient maybe some beer (laughs) um, to kind of numb them out, but they'd have to hold them down. And there would be, you know, sawdust on the floor. That was the kind of best disinfectant. And he was having to do post-mortem. So he was very young and it was pretty dark stuff. And I just thought it was really interesting. And so the poem starts, you know, body and flesh a compass for an isle fervent with dissent. Your mind's eye perform mercilessly beneath scalpel and pen because I just thought the precision, literally, of operating and then his poems are so precise and concise and beautiful. And it's just he's creating this magic out of these bloody times. And, and so that was my first poem for that project. And, and um, it's it's really exciting. And obviously, I, I really enjoy collaborative work. Obviously, Jimmy and I... Yeah, collaborating on Catalyst was such an amazing, amazing, amazing creative adventure to embark on with him, and to also now be working on the Keats and Shelley bicentennial. And, and um, Dan Baldwin, the sculptor, he's going to be creating a piece of work inspired by mine and Simon's poem. So oh, that's wow. in, it's like another inter interdisciplinary collaboration across different disciplines so that's really exciting so he's working on that and we're hoping to you know when restrictions ease we're hoping to be able to do some poetry readings maybe this autumn and and we'll be doing stuff into next year because then this so this 23rd of february was the 200th anniversary of keats's death and then next year 
is the 200th anniversary of Shelley's death. So they were young men that lived in these very difficult times and really left their mark, which was incredible. And of course, with two of my collections of poetry, Zoray and Camille, and then Catalyst, the album, both, well, all three of those, the, the cover photographs, the photography work was done with Scarlett Page, who I know you interviewed for the podcast. Yes, yes. That was a blast. Yeah, I love that. And and I just she she had a great time chatting with you, so I oh, knew it would good. be it would be fun to talk to you and um and I loved I loved listening to that podcast you did with her and Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really fun and, and I and I love working with her again. I think it's it's um she's so warm and lovely and so talented yeah. and very you know, yeah, she she really, I mean, she's had an amazing career. And like for 30 years has just the, the output and she's the hardest worker and, and, and the images we've created each time, it's been, you know, she's just caught stuff. And the cover of, the cover of Camille, it was, we'd started off inside and she said, let's go outside. And it was, I think it was winter when we were shooting and the light was just right. And I was kind of backlit and she just got this image of me and it was kind of, you know, again, like surrendering and letting go. I didn't have any, I was just free. I wasn't going in with expectations of what I wanted and yeah. just through, you know, kind of following her direction, she captured these images and it was a great image for the book. And then Catalyst, obviously we recorded it. Tower House and Scarlet came and we didn't tell anyone we were making Catalyst. It was a complete secret. But we told Scarlett because obviously I was like, can you come? I want to take photos for a project. And she came and she's like, okay, what's going on? And so we told her. And she was like, aha, okay. I thought you guys were up to something. That's and funny. Yeah. So we had a fun day. Again, it was, you know, working with Jimmy and working with Scarlett. It was great to, you know, work with family and, and to take the pictures at Tower House where we recorded it and tower house was the kind of other element to the album it's it was an important character in it and um in in the album sleeve and the artwork we included a illustration of tower house from the victorian times that is i just was important to have in there and and um so it was really great so i you know it's it's um it was a pleasure to work with scarlet and and she's done some really interesting portraits during the pandemic. And, and again, we're all finding interesting different ways to work within these restrictions. So it's, it's been an interesting time. The restrictions are creating new ways to be creative. Yeah, totally. Totally. Have you, have you done any like socially distanced photo shoots yet? I haven't. You know, what's funny. The, the, what the, the pandemic has done, done has freed up everybody to talk and so yeah good point i have been slammed with people coming on the podcast i mean i try to record one a week or maybe two and and release one a week but i've had weeks where i've had three or four people like can we do it on this day and this day and it's wow it's just been insane so i didn't you do three this weekend i yes i had um <laughs> that's see. amazing i did a friday who the heck i had um oh i had uh donnelly god show from uh the grateful dead 
Wow. And then, uh, yeah, that was on Friday. Then KJ McKillop from the band Moose, who uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with them. They were a really interesting band. The, oh, the, no, I'm not. The term shoegaze was created during one of their concerts, one of their live shows. Oh, wow. They Yeah, they, uh, they're a fairly new band playing live. And uh, the reviewer came and watched the show. And KJ, Kevin McKillop, his nickname was Moose. And uh, they named the band Moose. And so he, the singer is a guy named Russell. So Moose is sitting there playing his guitar. And he's got so many effects pedals that he's looking down to make sure he's always oh, no. hitting the right <laughs> one. And Russell had just written the lyrics to the music. So he wasn't familiar with the lyrics yet. So he's staring down, looking at a lyric sheet. And so the reviewer sitting there and he goes, I don't know what's going on because these guys are just shoegazing the entire concert, just staring at their feet. And so that created the term shoegaze, which now is a, an actual musical genre. Wow. That's quite the claim to fame. <laughs> and he did, this is something I found out, that uh, Moose's first album had a song that featured Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries. Oh, wow. And it's before the Cranberries' first album came out. Oh, wow. Gosh. So, yeah. So it's, it, and there's actually a second song that she recorded, but they can't find it. Oh my gosh. Was well, she a, had such an unusual voice. Yeah. And it was a demo that they didn't mix and, and Moose liked that song more than the one they actually ended up putting on the album. So they're trying to find that song, that demo, because they never finished, they never mixed it down and, and finished the mixing process. But, you know, hopefully one of these wow. days they can find it. So, wow, that's incredible. And then, and you're the third one this week, so... Wow, so you've really been, <laughs> it's been a, you've been busy. Uh, yeah, and, and, and uh, the problem was that I would re release one episode a week. And so yeah. my lead time was going, it, I, I don't like it to be more than four weeks. And it was sure. getting to like eight weeks. I'm like, this is ridiculous. You're going to have to up it to two a week. <laughs> That's what I've been doing. I joined a podcast yes. network and uh, like I mentioned to you earlier, and, and I was like, do you guys mind if I every once in a while start putting, Give you more? Yeah, if I, and they're like, no problem. Don't worry about that. Just <laughs> put out as much as you want. So Yeah, give us as much as you've got. Yeah, that that's amazing. But it's true. I've definitely, especially like, you know, working out at home and you I'll put on a podcast and, and so it's definitely been it's it's a nice escape as well. Like say yeah. a creative podcast or an interview as opposed to you know, checking in with the news each day, I think especially Yeah. There was so much fear and uncertainty and it was such an I mean, we were oh, all yeah. in it together. We just didn't know what was going on. And now a year and we can look back and we understand what's happening and ways we can hopefully keep ourselves safe. But I think initially it was it was the unknown. And it's, you know, I think it's really important to check in. I personally like to check in with the news and, and know what's going on in the world. But it's also, you've got to have a balance and, and not get oh, God, watch yeah. it every hour. Do you know what I mean? It's you've got to. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. You'll go down the drain. Totally, especially like the death toll, and it's yeah. so sad and heartbreaking, really. So it's it's a real treat to have conversations and and chat to yeah other artists, yeah. and then and then listen to them talk about their process and on podcasts and stuff. So it's no, it's it's great that you've been able to. You've been so busy. That's amazing. Oh, <laughs> I've been amazed. I mean, you know, having someone like yourself on, but Aww. also people that that I looked up to. 
Yeah, you know, as a young kid, I like, bet. I had John Anderson from Yes on not too long ago. Oh, wow. Um, Albert Bouchard from Blue Oyster Cult. So, you know, it's been... Oh, my gosh. It's That's been, incredible. Uh, Donnelly Gotcho from The Grateful Dead. So it's, you know, it's been really amazing to be able to connect with some of these people. And, you know, some of them are, are, are I'm still in contact with. So it's been yeah. really cool. Yeah, no, I've been, because we follow each other on Instagram. So each yeah. week I'm like, oh, wow, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's going to be an interesting podcast. And, and I, yeah. I thank you because I see that you do like almost yeah. every single one of them. So thank you. So I yeah, do appreciate I do. that. Well, you've also, the way you post them, it's such a great distinctive layout. Oh, thank you. It's really recognizable. I think that's, it's a, that was a, a smart move. So people is like, ah, oh, it's this week's podcast is I hope, great i hope so. i was a little concerned about that i wasn't sure if that would get boring after a while if i should switch it up maybe do a black background on the logo or something i don't know i like it i like it all right well i'll keep doing it <laughs> i like i said a couple of times already i have kept you for quite a while thank you so Aww. much it's been a, it's been so such much. a pleasure thank you for making time and let's yeah chat again soon and um have a good sunday with your family thank you enjoy you your too. chicken nuggets <laughs> thank you very and much good luck to your amazing daughter training as a nurse she's one of our heroes so oh, she good is. luck to her that's incredible she is I, I will pass that along thank you so much It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.